Hi there, and welcome to the Engage Employee Podcast. There is an irrefutable body of evidence which proves that organisations with engaged employees have more engaged customers and as a result gain long-term competitive advantage. The cultural and commercial benefits of organisations taking a holistic view of their employee and customer engagement strategies are proven. For over a decade, we've helped some of the world's biggest brands engage with their workforce through our industry-leading conferences and online digital media. To find out more, visit engageemployee.com. In this episode, we sit down with Paul Deeman, Head of Diversity and Inclusion at NHS Employers. Paul has been a HR professional for over 30 years. He has worked in local government, the voluntary sector, and the health service, with particular experience in the fields of recruitment, employee relations, employee law, and diversity. He also works on various diversity working groups and initiatives and writes frequently about all aspects of diversity through various social media channels. We speak to Paul about what it's like to work at the NHS employees and more about recent projects and future plans. Welcome. Uh, Before we start, please could you just introduce yourself to everybody and just tell us about NHS employers, about your role and how you became Head of Diversity and Inclusion. Wow, okay. Um, So my name (laughs) is... In no particular order. (laughs) In no particular order, yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, So my name is Paul Deemer. I'm the Head of Diversity and Inclusion at NHS Employers. NHS Employers is a national organisation serving the NHS. We help and support the 500 or so NHS organisations across England in terms of their workforce challenges. Um, And probably that's enough, I think. Okay. Um, Right, so we're obviously going to be able to tap into your your rich resource. Have you always worked? uh, So just tell me a bit, how do you you come to Head of Diversity and Inclusion? Like, what's what's been your your career path up to there? Career path, so um, public sector, voluntary sector, actually. Um, so started in the public sector, local government for several years, uh, HR generalist uh, until I went into the charity sector. I worked for the um, Bernardos, yep. the children's charity, um, and it was there actually that I got approached to, um, I got the tap on the shoulder, um, to uh, apply for a national diversity role for Bernardos. Um, which was interesting and challenging because Bernardo's at that time was essentially a Christian-based organisation, um, but they did lots and lots of good work in communities and they wanted to sort of break away from that uh, traditional image that they yeah. had. So, um, but there was huge challenges because they had a very traditional uh, board and uh, trustees who wanted to hang on, some of them wanted to hang on to that uh, Christian ethos. Mm. Um, so, um, but that was where I, my first steps into diversity and then I went into the NHS, again as a generalist, um, yeah. director in a hospital. Yes, I worked, at, I worked okay. in a hospital for a couple of years, yeah. and then I, work, I came into policy areas, which is where I am now. And it's your passion? It's my passion, yeah. Brilliant, okay. So what do, what do employers need to do to create workplaces where staff feel as if they belong, and actually, as Chris was alluding to earlier, bring their whole selves to work? Yeah, okay. So I think, like Chris was saying, actually, language is so important in this area. And I think that's particularly true around the area of equality, diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. I don't think, as a country, we've ever really got our heads around the language of um, diversity and inclusion. Um, if you think back to uh, even the concept of equality, which is where all of this started many years ago, 
Um, I think you know, lots of people then, and probably still now, think that equality is all about treating everybody the same. Okay. And we all know now that it isn't. Yeah. It's, very much, it's very much the opposite of that, actually. It's about treating people as individuals and differently. So um, I think the language has been interesting because we moved from equality into um, diversity um, probably about 10 years or so ago, I think. Um, and again, I think that was more suited to the time. So you know, people understood diversity. And then this concept of inclusion came along. So we, now people talk about EDI. You probably hear in your own organizations, people talk about EDI. I don't like acronyms myself. I know we've got a huge acronym of the NHS, but um, I, uh, which is the worst one in the world. But I hate acronyms, and EDI is the one that really. I'm going to fight you on that because I love a good acronym. <laughs> I know, I Let's know. Have an arm wrestle. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So no, that's okay. So we've got this EDI concept or equality, diversity, and inclusion, and now we've got this belonging concept, mm -hmm. which has come into the language in the last couple of years. And whilst I'm very happy to talk about belonging, and I'll talk all day, Charlotte, I told you that, about, <laughs> uh, about these concepts, but I do think we need to think, and I would suggest to anybody who's thinking of talking to their organisation about belonging, think about what it means. Because if you look at the dictionary definition yeah. of belonging, um, it doesn't, I don't think it quite fits with what we're trying to achieve, actually. And um, I saw your slide, uh, Chris, from your chief executive, the quote, which I thought was great, actually, because that, that quote that um, you had there was actually a good definition of belonging, I think. It didn't mention the word belonging at all, actually, which isn't a bad thing. Um, but think about what it means, I think, that was, and put it within your um, corporate context, which, is, again, is what you've done um, with Microsoft. And we do that as well. So, you know, within the NHS, our, co you know, our, our core um, raison d'etre is to improve healthcare for the public of the country, you know, and that's and that's we we hang on to that. But how do how do you keep how do you keep how do you keep your employees? Uh, how do they know what concept they're supposed to be and what language they're supposed to be using and what belonging truly means and what it means to them? Because it's great that we've got all these definitions and obviously us as kind of thought leaders keep you know we're we're on the pulse of this. But what does it what what does it mean to kind of you know? Bob in accounts. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, so there's lots about, um, there's, I suppose there's, there's lots about leadership, which Chris mm. talked about. So it's very important that um, our leaders understand what equality, diversity, and yeah. inclusion is, um, and that they can talk about it comfortably as well. So, which sort of plays into what you were talking about, Charlotte, you talked about emotional intelligence. Yes. Yeah. We, we talk, within the NHS, we talk about compassionate yes. leadership yeah. at the moment. Yes, I know that. Um, and if you want to know about compassionate leadership, um, a bit of a plug, um, <laughs> search for Michael West, Professor Michael West. Mm. Uh, he works for the King's Fund, um, but he's done some really good research, um, but also some really good writing as well around compassionate leadership. And do you think compassionate leadership is something that private companies can adopt as much as public sector? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Can you just yeah. tell us what the components are then? Um, uh, no. Yes, no. <laughs> <laughs> so what is a compassionate leader? So um, it's, it's, for me, I'll, I'll give you my definition. Yes, so please. For me, it's, um, some of it's about the uh, elements actually of emotional intelligence, which is something I'm more familiar with. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm a big fan of emotional intelligence. And a big part of emotional intelligence is understanding yourself 
And actually, I think that's what a lot of good leadership is about. It's about knowing yourself. And then you feel comfortable in your skin. And once you can feel comfortable in your skin, then you can empathise, I think, a lot more safely. And, and empathy, again, is a strong element of emotional intelligence. Once you can empathise, then you can um, step into someone's shoes, which is what we talk about good leadership being. It's about the ability to step into someone's shoes and see somebody's world through, you know, through their eyes, see the world through their eyes. So, for, so one of the concepts, for example, that we use uh, with our leaders, I don't know whether Chris has used this or whether the private sector uses this actually, but we use reverse mentoring a lot. I don't know if you've heard of the concept of reverse mentoring, but um, some people call it, um, oh, there's another phrase for it. Anyway, reverse mentoring is a concept of uh, a, a board member um, being buddied up, if you like, with uh, somebody within the organisation. Um, and it being reciprocal mentoring. Sorry, that's the other phrase that you might hear, reciprocal mentoring. Um, and it's the idea of just sharing, you talked about storytelling, um, sharing stories, sharing experiences. And reverse mentoring is often the first step, actually, for leaders to get into. But you asked about Bob in accounts, didn't you? Sorry. That's all right. Yeah, well, I didn't talk about, about Bob, Bob did I? Now. Yeah. <laughs> He's yesterday's news. <laughs> but lower down the organisation. It's, yeah. it's all about education. Yeah. It's all about education. Um, I think education is important in terms of um, making sure that people, again, understand um, the concepts that we are talking yes. about. Yeah. Um, but also, um, I think the other way that Bob in accounts can um, start to appreciate um, some of the uh, aspects of equality, diversity, inclusion is also celebration as well. Okay. Yeah? There's lots of yeah. people will know. There's lots of you know. Mm -hmm. This week is Mental Health Awareness Week, mm -hmm. for example. And actually, for the NHS at the, the moment, this week is Equality and Human Rights Week. So we're doing loads of stuff at the moment, publicising um, some of the work that is happening across the NHS around equality, diversity, and inclusion. Brilliant. Is that all right for Bob? Thank you very much. Yeah. Bob's done. Tick, Bob. <laughs> Can you can can anyone can anyone have emotional intelligence? Can you teach it? Because the thing that interests me is the idea that we are still in a world, unfortunately, where we've got a lot of there's a, there's a certain type of people, especially in the private sector, who make up boards. Mm -hmm. And you would think because they are culturally ingrained to possibly not be naturally akin to diversity and inclusion. Is that some, has, anyone got, has everyone got the capability to increase their emotional intelligence? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I, I did have an epiphanal moment in terms of emotional intelligence about 15 years ago. Um, I went on an, emotion, an intensive emotional intelligence course, okay. um, which was, a th was, I think, five days um, in, a, in a barn in the middle of Cheshire somewhere, mm. I think, uh, with three other people. Uh, one of whom's gone on to be an MP, actually, oh, gosh. which I'll talk to you about Was later. Was it Rhys Mogg? No. <laughs> now, don't mention Rhys Mogg, OK? Because you talked about Alan Sugar, yeah? <laughs> Jacob Rhys Mogg, he's our nemesis, yeah? Uh, his, his call to the civil servants to come back to work, yeah, was, was your oh. equivalent, I think, of uh, Alan Sugar. Um, so, uh, yeah. But, um, no, so I, I did... I went on Emotional Intelligence Court, and it... It changed me. Did it? I can only talk from my own, own yeah. experience. Yeah, it changed me from, I mean, maybe whether it's your natural inclinations, I don't know, but it, it, it changed my whole perception of um, how I was, actually how I was viewed. It makes you look at yourself, actually. It makes you understand that when I sit here as head of diversity and inclusion, 
you know, I know there are people, that, well, I know immediately I stood up here that people have made their own assumptions anyway straight away about me. Um, and I need to, I need to recognise that and I need to accept that. Mm. And I do, you know, so I can't speak for uh, the black staff within the NHS because they don't see me as representing them. I can't speak for the gay staff in the NHS because they don't know what my sexuality is, but they've probably made an assumption about me within probably 30 seconds, I think, of me sitting up here, perhaps. Um, and of course, gender, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not you. I'm, I'm Bob. <laughs> yeah, from accounts. <laughs> and actually, you know, I wonder in a way whether the pandemic has expedited leaders' ability to either want, either kind of untap their emotional intelligence or have more of a vested interest in it. Because yeah. obviously they were, they were, they had to be more visible, they had to be more authentic, they had to be more present, they had to be less scripted, didn't they? Yeah, they did. But, you know, everybody will remember what happened fairly early on in the pandemic um, because it, there was this perfect storm that happened, mm. which was the Black Lives Matter yes. uh, campaign in America. Um, and two years on now, who remembers Black Lives Matter? What has changed around Black Lives Matter? People remember it, uh, we all remember it, and you mention it, and, and again, you know, your leaders will set up immediately and say, oh yeah, yeah, Black Lives Matter, yeah, but what have they done? There were lots of statements that were made at that time. I saw many chief executives um, issue a, a press release, and we had loads and loads of press releases coming into the NHS from uh, chief executives within NHS trusts. But again, what has changed? Yeah, we had a commission last year, the Commission for Race Equality, I think, which was led by Tony Saul. Um, it had a whole host of recommendations in there of things that, and, but the main conclusion it came to is, you know, what has changed since, um, well, I came into diversity, I mentioned about Bernardo's, yeah. you know, when I worked at Bernardo's, it actually coincided with the Stephen Lawrence inquiry which, how many people can remember that, oh actually? Gosh. Yeah, good, thank you. <laughs> I'm not as old as I thought I was, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, that, my time there coincided with Stephen Lawrence. And again, there was a whole flurry of activity at that time. Oh, the Daily Mail, it was, it, they, they had Blimmin' Poster Boy yeah. in the worst possible way. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, again, what has changed in terms of the Met Police? You know, oh, look what happened in the last couple of years around. So, you know, yes, um, where did that question start? Well, I was Sorry. just talking about the <laughs> pandemic and whether it actually changed leaders' ability to tap into their either natural um, EI or, or, or seek to become more emotionally yeah, intelligent. It's, it's given license. It's given license. For conversations. For conversations. It's um, a good place to start. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, lots of things uh, are working to make that easier for those people who are more inclined to support diversity and inclusion. Um, to do that and so yes I think it has helped in that regard. Okay and actually kind of you know kind of slightly still on this theme what can employers do to ensure that managers are confidently able to manage their staff's um, well-being um, and welfare more holistically? I think there's um, there is a lots of things you can do so the education thing I talked about the celebration thing I talked about listening is a really key element. Um, again, Chris talked about storytelling. Um, the really interesting thing that we've seen over the pandemic was the growth of networks um, within our organisations. Okay. So the growth of um, black, Asian, minority ethnic networks, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender networks in particular. 
Um, disability networks in particular. Um, there's been a whole plethora of disability networks that have grown through the pandemic. Um, but um, religion and belief networks within organisations have also grown up. Um, not so much uh, women's networks, which is interesting, because the NHS is an interesting creature in that regard, because 80% of our workforce is female. Is it right? Gosh. Yeah. Gosh. <laughs> so um, f gender tends to get forgotten in our organisations, strangely enough. So, but anyway, the growth of networks, I think, has been really, really influential. And I think the more that we can uh, encourage that, and hopefully our managers and leaders can encourage that, for staff to get involved in networks, then, and, but more importantly, listen to those networks mm -hmm. as well and listen to what they're saying and build that into the everyday business of the organisation, then the better. Brilliant. Okay, and another manager question. Go on. Um, how do they deal with visible and, importantly, invisible issues relating to physical and mental well-being? Okay, so Bob, when he does um, his appraisals mm. with his staff, should have something in there, whether it's on the form or you know, in the template that he's got, um, which will require him to ask about the health and wellbeing. So I do think that there, we need to introduce systems. I, okay, I yeah. can't lose my HR background, mm -hmm. sorry. We do have to have systems, systems in and place processes. Yeah, and processes. Yeah. Uh, and I think those things can help. Mm. Um, so Bob should be encouraging um, his staff to think about their health and wellbeing mm -hmm. during the appraisal and supervision as well. Mm. Um, you know, which is a more regular process. Um, we do need, um, I know, Chris, you said about data, uh, indexes, etc. We love data in the NHS. You know, we're a big organisation. Yeah. We need lots of data, yeah. yeah, just to keep track of things. So we, and we are lucky, actually, we do a staff survey every year. We get half a million responses um, to that survey. Um, and it's going up all the time. We're, get, we're hoping to get to the point where every 1.4 million of our staff complete the staff and survey. What, to what year. extent does um, well-being feature on that? It's hugely, on that it's huge survey. part of it, and, it? and equality and diversity yeah. as well. Um, the only thing I would say around equality and diversity that we don't do well enough mm. is that, and this relates to, um, I think, the Equality Act, mm. which I don't think uh, I think is out of date now, needs changing. Yeah, tell us needs more about updated. that. I know that's something you're passionate about. Well, I was really disappointed actually with the Queen's speech this year, all those pieces of legislation that was uh, listed out and there was no mention. There was, a, there was mention of a mental health bill, mm. I think, possibly. But there's a long overdue review of the Equality Act. It's, it's 2010, it's 12 years out of date. Yeah. You know, things have changed significantly. The language of the Equality Act is just archaic, you know? Um, and that, unfortunately, is reflected in our surveys as well, because our surveys tend to reflect legislation. Right. Um, so, but One's we don't holding back the other. Exactly, yeah. So we need to be more sophisticated and more nuanced in our categorizations of um, people. You know, we have lots of conversations with people with disabilities mm. and disabled staff, and, you know, and they say to us, you know, I don't see myself in that box. It just mm. says, are you disabled, yes or no? Yeah, it's not good it's enough. It's homogenised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. Brilliant, okay. Did that answer your question, sorry? I think so. I think so, but I know you, I know you wanted to talk about it. Um, right, we've only got a couple of minutes left with you, and I think I'm just going to ask you, with all of your experience, to give um, our audience your best little nugget of advice. You know, what, what, how can you help people with their diversity and inclusion initiatives in their workplaces? What's, what, what should be top of their list? 
How long have we got? <laughs> um, okay, all right, I'll do a plug, actually. Um, I love poetry, actually. Um, it's, it's been an inspiration to me. Um, and it's, it's helped me to uh, sometimes make sense of some of these things. Um, so I would encourage you to think creatively, actually, about these things. Mm -hmm. I'm going I'm to give a plug to one of my favourite poets at the moment. Um, <laughs> um, Kay Tempest. Do people know Kay Tempest? Yeah. Okay, if you don't. Um, she's just written a book. It's not, it's not a book of poems, actually. It's a book about connection. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, I think a lot of this, and actually equality and diversity and inclusion is about connection. I think Chris alluded to this. You know, she was talking about health, health and well-being, but she made the connections to diversity and inclusion. So for me, it's about um, making connections um, between your policies and strategies and between um, equality and diversity and inclusion. And it's about you know, making them meaningful yes. to people. Yeah. Brilliant. You've been amazing. <laughs> I knew it would be a good chat. Um, can we say thank you very much and give a big round of applause to Paul? Thank you.